Scriptures this morning are, of course, the Easter stories. Hear this word from God as it comes to us from the 10th chapter of Acts, beginning in the 34th verse. Then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him does what is right and is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all those who are oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem, and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then from the Gospel of Mark, we are in Mark in this season, As you know, in the 16th chapter comes what seems like a truncated story, and it seems like a truncated story for a reason. Let me just tell you that there is not a biblical scholar worth their salt anywhere who does not believe that the original story of the Gospel of Mark stopped here in the 8th verse. And you say, oh, big deal, Pastor. Well, okay, big deal, but here's how that ends. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. If you were reading that story to your kid at bedtime, they'd ask you where the rest of it was. It doesn't finish. It's... it's, The kind of thing that you know there ought to be something more coming. Because if they just stopped in fear and terror and never told anyone, what are we all doing here this morning? It doesn't make any sense. And most importantly, if they just stopped there, what is a brilliant young preacher supposed to say today? So we'll hear the story, but remember that they do get to the notion of resurrection. 16th chapter of Mark, the first eight verses. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone 
from the entrance of the tomb. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe and sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. If you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they had laid him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out, fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Friends, here ends the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tim Keller is dying. If you don't know who he is, he has become one of my favorite authors and most recently has written Hope in the Times of Fear, the Resurrection, and the Meaning of Easter, which I simply cannot recommend highly enough to you. Keller is the founding and former pastor of the 6,000-member Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He is a New York Times best-selling author. And halfway through writing this book on the resurrection, he ironically was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Tim Keller, one of the greatest theological minds of our day, is dying. And he knows it. He knows 80% of the people diagnosed with that particular cancer survive only a year. And he is seriously wrestling for not only what that means for him professionally, but also what it means for Christian theology in general, and most poignantly, what it means for him personally. In March... Keller wrote an article for The Atlantic called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death, and I also cannot recommend that highly enough to you, saying that he felt like a surgeon who was suddenly put on the operating table. In this article, Keller talks about the struggles of having to finally have to take his own medicine that he had been offering to sick and dying parishioners over the past 45 years. In the article, Keller helpfully describes the death-denying culture that we live in and its implications for the theology of resurrection. The founder of our faith tradition, John Calvin, said, we undertake all things as if we are establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life. But the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuality remains 
fixed in our minds. Death for most all of us is an abstraction. Something technically true, but unimaginable on a personal reality. And for the same reasons, Keller says, our beliefs about God and the afterlife are often abstractions as, abstractions as well. However, now in the face of a fatal diagnosis and clear, with clear and impending death ahead of him, Keller has taken another look, asking himself and us, when certainty of mortality and death finally break through, is there a way to face it without debilitating fear? Is there a way to spend the time you have left growing into greater grace and love and wisdom? And ultimately, Keller's answer is yes, but with some struggle. But to do so involves, he says, both headwork and heartwork. Headwork is the rational intellectual engagement. Heartwork is the emotional spiritual engagement. Here is where Keller's wisdom shines brilliantly. Rational conviction and experience, he says, might change one's mind, but the shift will not be complete until it takes root in one's heart. In the book, Keller writes that because, especially because of the resurrection, Christianity is an historical, reasonable, and gracious faith. And I will submit today that the historical and reasonable are part of the headwork, and the gracious is part of the heartwork. Because of the incarnation, Jesus Christ has us root Christianity in history. In a particular time and place, he was born, he lived, he died, he was raised. To say it is an historical faith means that the resurrection was a historical event. This is not hard, people. Either it happened or it didn't. Now, I realize that we live in times where it's increasingly difficult to discern fact from opinion. But listen, either we landed on the moon or somebody shot that in a studio in Texas somewhere. Jesus was raised or he wasn't. Fact. The evidence of that helps lead us toward rational faith. 1 Corinthians 15 helps us here as it answers many of the modern objections to the, to the claims of resurrection. Listen to this. This is Paul speaking. For I handed on to you as the first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared, get this, 
He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Did you get all that? Such a large number of people. Maybe the resurrection was a theory created after Jesus had died, long after anybody would know whether or not it was true. No, says Paul, there are witnesses, many of whom are still alive. Maybe Christ was only present in the hearts of his believers. No, says Paul, there were witnesses, many of whom are still alive. And happened on the third day. Those kind of specifics point to reality. Maybe the resurrection was a hoax. No, says Paul. Witnesses. 75% of 1 Corinthians 15 is devoted specifically to naming eyewitnesses, most of whom, Paul tells us, are still living at the time of his writing. And get this. Jews weren't like Romans. They didn't believe human beings could become God. The fact that they were doing that and worshiping a God-man named Jesus just months after his resurrection points to the fact that it must have been true because otherwise it didn't make any sense to them at all. The resurrection of one single individual in the midst of history while evil and suffering and death continued in the world was simply unimaginable for the Jews of Jesus' day. Paul himself argues for the rationality of theology of the resurrection. And he has two main arguments for that. One, there were witnesses. Two, the tomb was empty. Get this. And if I showed you this, you could see there are all kinds of scriptures following all of this. A theologian named Peter Williams gives this list. The resurrection, resurrected Jesus is recorded appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and in the countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning, in the evening, by prior appointment, without appointment, close and distant and by lake to a group of men to a group of women to individuals to groups of 500 sitting standing walking eating and always talking many are explicitly up close encounters involving conversations it's hard to imagine this pattern of appearances recorded in all the gospels and early christian letters without there having been multiple individuals who claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. 
witnesses. And the tomb is empty. Remember we talked about this earlier in the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, dead, and buried. It seems redundant. Why do we do that? Because if he's buried and isn't raised, where's the body? Tomb is empty. Tomb is empty. If you do your head work, your intellectual ascent, you can see that the resurrection faith is not blind belief that rejects human reason. But, and here's where the heart work comes in, even if you come to believe on rational grounds that the resurrection of Jesus probably happened, you must still exercise faith to become a Christian. In 1273, a very famous theologian named Thomas Aquinas stopped working on his theological masterpiece. If you get this book today, it's about like this in nine-point font called Summa Theologicae. And he stopped because he had had this great experience of God, so powerful that it made his theology seem like straw, he said, by comparison. When asked further about it, Aquinas said, not that he rejected his previous theological efforts, but by comparison, they paled. Aquinas Aquinas continued that he had seen the difference between a map of God and God himself. In another analogy, Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards talks about honey. We may know that honey is sweet. People can tell us that honey is sweet. It could be chemically analyzed. And we could get a report that says honey is sweet, but until we actually take it in, let it drip on our tongue, experience it for ourselves, we don't really know what honey is and what sweet is and how sweet and good honey can be. All the time in the scriptures, Jesus is saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, friends, we gain strength from the resurrection only if we believe it happened. Resurrection is the fundamental operating principle of Christian life. If Jesus is really raised from the dead, then we do not follow a revered dead teacher. But a risen Lord we can actually have present with us right now today. Through the resurrection, Jesus says to believers that there is a potential for rich, intimate communication with him and communion with him for knowing him and knowing his love. Hopefully, Keller writes, 
If Jesus is raised from the dead, it changes everything. How we conduct our relationships, our attitudes toward wealth and power, how we work in our vocations, how our understanding and practice of sexuality, race relations, and justice happen. Tim Keller is clear that his belief in the resurrection is the hope that sustains him throughout his days. His experiences with God are deeper and sweeter, he says, than he has ever known before because of the headwork and the heartwork he has done surrounding the idea of Jesus' resurrection. Contemporary author John Eipdyke has written this great, great poem called Seven, Stan Seven Stanzas at Easter. It is like this. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was his body. If cells' dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the am am amnio acids rekindle, the church will fail. It was not as the flowers each spring recurrent. It was not at his Holy Spirit in mouths and fuddled eyes of eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours, the same hinged thumbs and toes, valved hearts that pierced, died, withered, passed, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. This is the best. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted and faded, credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not stone in the story, but the vast rock of materiality that in slowly grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. If we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel. Weighty with Max Planck Quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awaken in one unthinkable hour. We are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Friends, the door is open. The tomb is empty. Walk through that door and believe that Jesus is alive. Amen.